You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Eat food, not too much, mostly plants. That, more or less, is the short answer to the supposedly incredibly complicated and confusing question of what we humans should eat in order to be maximally healthy. I hate to give the game away right here at the beginning of a whole book devoted to the subject, and I'm tempted to complicate matters in the interest of keeping things going for a couple hundred more pages or so. I'll try to resist, but I will go ahead and add a few more details to flesh out the recommendations. Like, eating a little meat isn't going to kill you, though it might be better approached as a side dish than as a main. And you're better off eating whole fresh foods rather than processed food products. That's what I mean by the recommendation to eat food, which is not quite as simple as it sounds. For while it used to be that food was all you could eat, today there are thousands of other edible food-like substances in the supermarket. These novel products of food science often come in packages elaborately festooned with health claims, which brings me to another somewhat counterintuitive piece of advice. If you're concerned about your health, you should probably avoid products that make health claims. Why? Because a health claim on a food product is a strong indication it's not really food, and food is what you want to eat. You can see how quickly things can get complicated. Michael Pollan is the author of The Omnivore's Dilemma, A Natural History of Four Meals. His new book is In Defense of Food, and Eater's Manifesto. Thank you for joining me, Michael. Good to be here, Rick. Michael, your books are really ho- focusing on what you call our national eating disorder. Mm-hmm. Well, our, yeah, I call our, our state of perplexity and confusion uh, a kind of eating disorder. I mean, we spend a lot of time worrying about what to eat. A lot of time thinking about nutrition. We have brains now that are full of biochemistry, you know, antioxidants and probiotics and and phytochemicals and saturated fat and omega-3s and omega-6s. It's amazing how much chemistry that we're all sort of conversant with. Not that I'm confident we all know what these words mean. Um, and as much as we kind of worry and and uh, about this and what to eat and and what's what's going to be conducive to our health and what's going to ruin our health, um, we're nevertheless not very healthy. And I, I call that the American paradox: of people who worry a lot about health and and their diets, but nevertheless have very poor dietary health. You know, we're the champs in obesity and diabetes and diet-related cancers. And this strikes me as an eating disorder um, that, you know, if you're going to be unhealthy around food, you should at least enjoy it. Um, but we, we have the worst of both worlds. And you actually have developed a name for this, or or you cite somebody who's developed a name. It hasn't made it into the DSM four yet, but it's what is it? Orthorexia. It's uh, yeah. It was proposed by a, a doctor, and uh, if you search it on the web, you'll it'll take you to his website. And he claimed to be seeing a lot of patients who had this um, unhealthy obsession with healthy eating. Uh, that it interfered with their ability to 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 function in life. They were spending so much time worrying about eating the wrong nutrients. And uh, I think it's a it's you know it's it's the disorder for our time, and uh, it will be recognized soon if it hasn't been uh, already um, by by more and more shrinks. Um, but yeah, I mean that's 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 definitely the the extreme case of this American paradox that I'm talking about. 
And all this results from what you call the Western diet, which we've been has been in development for a while. And you talk about mm. the four phases of the industrialization of food. Well, the Western diet, you know, when you date it is a little tricky, but I would probably date it to the beginning of uh, refining of grain or the perfection of the refining of grain back in the 1860s, 1870s, where we came up with these steel rollers that allowed us to remove the last nutrients, essentially, from flour. <laughs> um, for the first time, we could, get, we could get flour really white by removing the germ. Um, and the reason flour hadn't been white before is that the germ would crush uh, when you were doing your stone grinding of wheat, and the germ contained lots of really good nutrients, uh, such as uh, omega-3 fatty acids and things like that. But we wanted it to be white, and we wanted it to be white so that um, it would be shelf-stable, so that it would endure, and uh, which white flour will last a long time without going bad. It also won't be attacked by bacteria and other microorganisms and rats and mice, and the reason for that is it has so little nutritional value. <laughs> They're not interested. So that was the beginning, though, of processing food to a point where we were diminishing its, its, uh, its value. Uh, but there are many other kind of, you know, stations along the way to the Western diet. That was a very important one. Uh, making sugar um, cheap and, and, uh, and accessible, which happens around the same time, actually, in England. Um, sugar in nature is very, very rare. Um, you know, you basically, you know, you're lucky enough to find a, uh, a, a beehive, you might find some, or you get it from, you get sweetness from um, uh, ripe fruit when it comes packaged with lots of really healthy nutrients. Um, the extraction of sugar from, from plants and fruit uh, to be a, you know, solo, freestanding um, uh, food is, is another important development. The move from eating lots of leaves to eating lots of seeds. Uh, we, we eat a diet heavy on seeds. Wheat is a seed, obviously. Um, you know, corn and all its derivatives come from that seed. Uh, we used to eat a lot more leafy greens, and they have um, great advantages. They're full of omega-3 fatty acids, whereas seeds are full of omega-6 fatty acids, which are uh, not quite as valuable. Um, and let's see, what are the, some of the other moves in the Western diet? I think the simplification of the diet and the narrowing of the diet to a handful of, of plants that come to dominate it, in our case, corn and soy, um, have, over time, uh, taken over what used to be a much more diversified diet. Um, but now we get about 40% of our calories from just those two plants. We get 20% of our calories from soy oil, uh, and we get 10, 10 or so calories from high fructose corn, 10%, I'm sorry, of our calories from high fructose corn syrup. So the, the, the concentration of um, uh, our land to grow corn and soy, it's 180 or so million acres now, these huge monocultures, uh, and the consequential um, uh, narrowing of the human diet. You know, we are omnivores. We need a great many different nutrients to be healthy, uh, and you can't get all those from processed corn and soy. Um, what else? What else? What else? You talked about the development of the F1 hybrid of corn. Yeah, well, that was uh, a big step on the way toward co corn's domination of our diets. Um, and when once you once they came up with the F1 hybrid, um, which is to say, it's the crossing of two lines, uh, inbred lines, 
of of corn. In in inbred line is you you've got say a, a corn plant that you keep crossing with itself over and over and over again, so it's very pure, genetically pure. And then you take two of those and you cross them with one another, and you get a hybrid. And hybrids have some very interesting properties. One is that their offspring are um, the first generation, that's what F1 means, are genetically identical, so that they will all ripen at the same time and all behave at the same way in the, in the field. Very, very important because it allows you to do mechanical harvesting and things like that. You know, you, you, you bring the combine through once and every, you know, cob is ready to go. Um, the other advantage of an F1 hybrid that's very, very important is that the offspring, the second generation, F2, will be um, will revert to one of its parents and not be nearly as desirable as the first. And in fact, it'll often be worthless. Um, the F1 generation will have more vigor, and the F2 generation nobody really wants. So what that means in effect is that the farmers can't save their seeds. They have to go back to the, the, the seed seller and buy seeds again every year. And what this does, in effect, is give you a copyright or a patent on that seed. You actually are controlling uh, your intellectual property of that F1 hybrid, and they have to come back to you every time. Corn was the first plant where we learned how to do this. Um, and that, since you could protect your investment, if you came up with a good hybrid, you could make a lot of money from it because farmers would have to come back every year, and they couldn't trade seeds amongst themselves. In effect, you had um, a monopoly. And you, it therefore justified a lot of investment. Uh, it paid off. You could invest in the development of a great variety of corn and get your money back because nobody could rip you off. So um, that is why we put so much R&D, research and development, into corn and work so hard to get its um, productivity up and get qualities we wanted from corn. And it really got all the, um, the attention of the breeders because they could recover their investment. And it's one of the reasons that we succeeded in getting the yield of the average acre of corn from about 20 bushels uh, around the turn of the last century. And that was the historical, that's basically what the Native Americans also got, about 20 bushels an acre, up well over 200 bushels of, of corn uh, today. Um, so it's one of the great gains in productivity in American agriculture. The only thing to rival even is the Holstein cow, uh, which we've also managed to, uh, you know, increase its yield of milk by an order of magnitude. That's one of the things that interests me is uh, when you talk, talked about soy, the, that soy beans in and of themselves aren't very healthful. In fact, they're kind of bad for you. And it, it was uh, the Japanese who first learned to ferment, crush, and, and and essentially turn them into something that was edible and usable. Yeah, the soybean is not a very promising or auspicious staple crop. Um, it has these anti-trypsin factors in it. It has chemical compounds that interfere with uh, the ability to for, uh, for our bodies to access the, uh, the protein in it. And unless you process it in a very specific way, um, you're going to get no value from it, and in fact, it's going to interfere. Uh, it's going to do some, you know, have some deleterious effects on your health. Uh, so to come up with tofu, to come up with these fermented um, soy products like soy sauce and tempeh and uh, a range of other, you know, Asian, uh, you know, this was ingenious. This is great food science that that happened thousands of years ago, and it really helped allow, uh, in China especially, uh, people who didn't have a great amount of protein to build a large population because you could get a lot of protein from soy if you processed it in this way. Um, now we process soy quite a bit, but we do it in very different ways. Um, yeah, we still have 
soy sauce and tempeh and all those kind of things. But we have these novel kind of processed soy products now that use soy protein isolate. You'll see that on the, uh, on the labels of foods or soy isoflavones. And these are really novel ways to process soy, and the jury's still out on whether they're as healthy. Uh, also, I think you can now get raw soy. It's called edamame, is it? Edamame. Edamame. Yeah. And that is, uh, you know, I don't know how accessible that protein is. Mm-hmm. Um, it is cooked. It's boiled uh, and salted. Um, but as its value as a food, I really can't speak to Um whether it's because it's green, it's you know the protein is more accessible, or in fact you're not digesting a lot of protein. I don't know. They're very tasty though. I I enjoy edamame, but I don't know how good a food it is. I wanted to talk a little bit about um, the way corn has come to dominate not just our landscape, but also our, our food shed, as 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 it's called. Our food shed, you know, it, it, it dominates the food chain, uh, the industrial food chain. I mean, if you're eating from the supermarket or if you're eating from fast food outlets, you most of the carbon you're, you're eating, and, and we do eat a lot of carbon basically, uh, began its life in a cornfield. Um, whether you're eating corn-fed meat, uh, whether you're eating sweetened sodas, uh, whether you're eating any number of processed foods made from these fractions of corn, processed fractions of corn, uh, it has become the dominant plant in our diet, along with soy. I mean, and the two plants share, you know, they take turns in most fields. They rotate with one another. And um, soy ends up becoming the fat, the oil very often, and, and the protein. Um, it is a source of protein. And the corn basically supplies the, the energy, the carbohydrate energy. Uh, and so, um, yeah, we have become, uh, you know, the corniest people on earth. I mean, we eat huge amounts of corn. We don't even realize it. You go to McDonald's, you don't see any corn on the menu, um, but that's all corn. Uh, the hamburger is, is, you know, corn carbon uh, fed to animals. Uh, the chicken nuggets, corn upon corn upon corn, all those ingredients that go into a chicken nugget, not just the corn-fed chicken, but the, the corn starch and the various uh, modified uh, starches that hold the whole thing together, that it's fried in, the corn oil that it's fried in, and all the really obscure biochemical terms you see on the ingredients for um, chicken nuggets or any number of other processed foods for that matter. Uh, most of those are derived from corn. It's an amazing plant. Um, you know, it just, it's protean in what it can do. Um, but, you know, you have to ask whether, as omnivores, we ro- really want to limit our diet to uh, that one plant, as ingenious as it is. Well, we don't have a lot of choice in, in, in a manner of speaking because it's so pervasive. It is ubiquitous, um, and it's hard to avoid if you're eating off of this industrial food chain, if you're getting your food, you know, if you're eating fast food. But if you're going to the farmer's market, you're not eating a lot of corn unless you buy corn on the cob. And eating corn as food is one thing. It's very different than eating corn as industrial raw material, which is what is uh, typically the case. Well, that's one of the great advantages of the seeds that you point out is that they can be turned not from food into a commodity. Yeah, and that's a real distinction. Um, Corn became a commodity really in the 19th century. Uh, And at that point... um, it was, uh, you know, it didn't matter how good your corn was or how good your neighbor's corn was. It all went into this stream, on this undifferentiated stream of corn. 
And there was so much of it coming off American farm, farm, you know, American farmers are so productive. And with advances in technology, advances in breeding, there was this tremendous overproduction of corn, also abetted by our, our agricultural policies, which essentially reward farmers for the, you know, by the bushel. And we, we cut them a check for every bushel of corn they can grow. So uh, when you have a huge supply of biomass anywhere in nature, creatures and processes will step forward to consume it. And in our case, this huge, you know, metaphorical mound of corn that we were producing every year, and we're up to, I think, 12 billion bushels a year or 14 billion bushels a year. It's a tremendous mountain. Um, many creatures have stepped forward. You have the, you know, the soda drinkers are there munching on the corn. You've got all the meat, um, you know, 60% of the corn ends up feeding feeding livestock. Um, it forces livestock onto feedlots um, because the corn is so cheap that feedlot operators can buy it more cheaply than farmers can grow it since it's subsidized. So it, you, it's no longer economic to feed animals yourself on your farms, uh, you know, with corn you grow yourself. And um, now our cars have stepped forward to help us consume all this corn biomass with ethanol. Um, so we're feeding our cars with it also. We, you know, we're packing away as much as we possibly can, and there's still corn left over, so we came up with ethanol to help get rid of it. Uh, now we actually have a shortage. Uh, the government has required so much corn-based ethanol in our gas tanks that the price of corn is up uh, higher than it's been in a generation. And that's going to be very interesting, what impact that's going to have. It's already wrecking havoc in places like Mexico that, that became dependent on our corn after NAFTA, NAFTA, because we started dumping cheap subsidized American corn there and put their corn farmers out of business, and now they eat off our farms. And then suddenly we have ethanol and the, and the price of corn, and, and you know there's a lot of unrest in Mexico City among the poor because the price of tortillas is soaring. So when we mix the food economy and the fuel economy, uh, you know, we're really asking for, for trouble. And all of this gets back to the basic nature of what food is, which it's a means of extracting energy. Yeah. I mean, you know, basically whatever food you're talking about, even seafood, you can trace it to a green plant performing photosynthesis. Only, photosynthesis is really the only uh, technology in nature for getting energy from the sun and turning it into a, a, a form that uh, animals can eat it. Um, carbohydrates, essentially, generating those sugars from, um, from, from the sun. So with, in the case of fish, it's algae that does the, you know, the key work, and algae is at the base of that food chain. For us, it's green plants. You're either eating the green plants who captured the solar energy, or you're eating the animals that ate the green plants that captured the solar energy. Um, and uh, that's the only trick we know. There's a couple bacteria that live at the bottom of, you know, sea vents on the ocean floor that have another energy source down there. But basically, this is the energy source. And uh, all our food chains begin in a, in a field. Uh, and in, in our case, most of our food chain begins in a cornfield, in a corn plant. Uh, that's and, and one of the reasons is that corn is one of the great photosynthesizers, very, very efficient. Um, you know, can generate more food per unit of, um, of water uh, than just about any other plant. Well, but since uh, the uh, mid-19th century when uh, uh, Eustace von Liebig and, and such a such a prophetic name. Mm -hmm. Although some people pronounce it Liebig, <laughs> Liebig. but yeah, uh, yes, um, uh, 
came up with the NPK strategy. Could you talk about what the NPK formulation is? Well, Liebig or Liebig is a really key person at both ends of the food chain. He was, you know, really the father of organic chemistry, a German, brilliant German chemist. And he was trying to figure out what in soil plants needed to live. And he also was trying to figure out what in food people needed to live. And, and he came up with three. He was very enamored of the number three. Uh, in soil, it was um, uh, N, P, and K, which are the, uh, the you know, the atomic, uh, the periodic table uh, terms for nitrogen, potassium, and phosphorus. And, uh, and he, having isolated these three macronutrients in soil, uh, he said, that's it. We now know how to grow soil. If we can make fertilizer uh, that offers N, P, and K, and you'll see that still on any bag of fertilizer, what percentage of N, P, and K is there, um, you've got it made. Uh, he was sort of right, and this ushered in the, the invention of, of chemical fertilizers because you can make nitrogen, which is the key, the biggest of these three, most important. You can make that from natural gas, and you can mine some of the others. Um, that plants will grow. Um, but he overlooked a few things. He overlooked the fact that if you just load up soil with those minerals in their pure chemical form, you're going to do damage to the structure of the soil. And there's a lot of other things going on in soil. Soil is a living thing. It's full of microorganisms that are breaking down minerals into trace uh, amounts of a whole lot of different chemicals. And it turns out these are very important too. You know, tiny little amounts of boron and zinc and, you know, metals of various kinds. Plants need to really be healthy. So he oversimplified things. It, it was a reductive um, approach. The interesting thing is that the same man thought he had nailed down human nutrition when he isolated carbohydrate, protein, and fat. And he, he helped isolate those three things and said, that's it. We've got it. Now we know the secret of human nutrition. And then he proceeded to apply that knowledge by making a baby formula, um, which he made out of you know water and flour and a few other things that had some fat in it. And uh, he said, well, you know, this is all we need. This should keep the babies healthy. But it didn't at all. The babies did really badly on his formula. He didn't understand quite why. But the reason was that he had overlooked the equivalent of trace elements, uh, vitamins. He didn't know about vitamins. Um, so we have this history of, of, you know, overconfidence that we've nailed down the chemistry underlying life. Um, but biology is a lot more complex than chemistry. And in both cases, we overlooked uh, a whole other class of nutrients, both for the soil and for people. And you know what? We're still overlooking things. We still have no idea of the mystery of a healthy soil. It's an it's unimaginably complex system. And it is a system. It's not just a collection of chemicals. And that's where Liebig, you know, did not understand. He did not understand emergent properties. He did not understand synergies. Uh, and the same is true in food. You know, we think we know a, a carrot, you know, what's in the soul of a carrot, what's going on there, how that works. But we don't. We, we, we see a certain set of nutrients. We've, we've nailed down the antioxidants and other phytochemicals and the and the carbohydrates and the sugars and all this kind of stuff, but there's so much more going on there we haven't figured out yet. And uh, Liebig was the founder of, in a sense, of this science or more ideology you call nutritionalism. Nutritionism. Nutritionism. Yes. Uh, he is. He stands at the, the beginning of that uh, tradition or an ideology. 
And it is an ideology that believes that the key to food is the nutrient, that a food is essentially the sum of its nutrient parts. And uh, what follows from that, though, are some other premises. And th now we're talking about an ideology, not a science, although it's based on a science. Um, some of the other premises of nutritionism are that since nutrients are invisible, no one's ever seen a nutrient except through a microscope, uh, and you really can't taste them or feel them, uh, they're a little bit mysterious. So therefore, you need experts to tell you what the nutrients are, how, are you getting enough of them, are you eating the right ones. You can't eat without an expert. You sort of need this priesthood to, to mediate your relationship to these invisible, mysterious substances. So it's a little bit like a religion. Third assumption of nutritionism is that, like most ideologies, it divides the world into good and evil. So there are, at any given moment, um, evil nutrients that we are trying to drive out of the food system, whether it's saturated fat or trans fats or, um, you know, uh, there's been a succession of, you know, now it's carbohydrates or sugar, high fructose corn syrup. These are the evil nutrients. And then on the other side, you have the blessed savior nutrients that as long as we eat enough of those, we're going to be fine and we're going to live forever. So we divide our, our universe into good and evil, and we have this kind of Manichaean war between the good nutrients and the bad nutrients, although the identity of either one is changing constantly. Um, and right now, the, the savior nutrient is omega-3, and the evil nutrient is, I would say, is trans fats. Um, but it, it, it can change. It can change on a dime. You know, a new study can change it. Um, and then the last assumption of nutritionism, and I think that we're particularly vulnerable to this idea in America, is that the whole point of eating is to advance physical health. Um, you're either helping your health by treating food as medicine or you're ruining your health by, um, by you know, abusing food. Um, and this is, a, I think, just as peculiar an idea. Um, people have eaten for a great many reasons besides health, and equally legitimate reasons. They eat for community. They eat for, to express their identity. They eat for pleasure. Um, these are all equally legitimate ways to think about food, but they're not popular in this country. We're very much focused on this nutrient approach to food. And I think it's, um, it's been very destructive, both of our happiness as eaters, because it's you know, a very Puritan way to eat. It really takes a lot of pleasure out of food if you, you're looking at a pile of nutrients rather than a hamburger or something like that. Uh, and wondering about the saturated fat and the burger and the high fructose corn syrup and the roll and the fat and the mayonnaise, you know, it, I mean, this is not a, a recipe for, for fun. Um, but the more serious objection to nutritionism is, I mean, I could, I could tolerate this whole approach if it actually worked and made people really healthy. But in fact, it hasn't. It's failed to do that. Lots of worrying about nutrients and nutritionism uh, doesn't appear to make us any healthier. Uh, and there's some reason to believe that our obsessive, you know, concern with um, nutrition makes us less healthy. I mean, the great case study of nutritionism, it's, it, the, you know, I, I describe it as the equivalent of the Soviet Union to Marxism. You know, its, it's greatest experiment and most abject failure was the low-fat campaign of the beginning of the 1970s. Um, this effort to get Americans to change their diet, to focus on saturated fat and drive fat out of their, out of their food supply. Um, we reformulated the whole food supply, filled the supermarkets with low-fat and no-fat products, and guess what? We got really fat on our low-fat diet. Um, there was something wrong with that message, I guess. Uh, and it could be that the science was never very good, uh, which I think is true, 
that, science, that fat is not quite the dietary evil we made it out to be, that in fact there's some very good fats that are crucial for our health, omega-3 being one, um, omega-6 being another, and that, um, so that, so that was a problem to demonize fat, something so important, not to mention so tasty. Um, but the other, the other problem was that as soon as you had these health claims proliferating in the supermarket and there were, you know, all these low-fat, no-fat products, people felt that, well, since they weren't the evil, they were the opposite of the evil, they were the good, and that if this was healthy to eat a low-fat cookie or low-fat soft drink, then eating two or three of them must be even better. So we started binging on carbohydrates because they had been exonerated. They weren't fat. Um, and, and what happened was that, in fact, our uh, consumption of um, especially refined carbohydrates led to us, we started eating another 300 calories a day um, because it was low fat. It couldn't be bad for us. And we got really fat. The average American on this extra 300 calories a day has put on 12 pounds since uh, 1980. Um, and there's our obesity epidemic. Uh, so that I, I, and the other problem with that campaign too is in its, in its zeal to get saturated fat out of the food supply, animal fats basically, it put us onto um, trans fats, hydrogenated vegetable oils, which were thought to be very healthy. This was a public health disaster. Uh, the Harvard School of Public Health estimates about 100,000 deaths uh, a year, I believe, due to trans fats. Um, so we took this possibly mildly unhealthy fat called saturated fat and replaced it with a demonstrably lethal fat called trans fats. That's a disaster, and we're still owed uh, an apology for that. The move from, from uh, butter to margarine, uh, all done in the name of our health, uh, turned out to, um, in fact, we'd put people on a much less healthy substance. There's a phrase you use repeatedly in, in your new book, historically unprecedented. You use this in reference to the what you call, and I think this is a really effective uh, piece of writing, um, the... Uh, the low-fat diet as an unprecedented experiment on an entire population. That's really frightening to think that. They, mm. it's a, and it's a, it's a really great perception of, of what happened. Well, it was unprecedented because we had never before tried, the government had never before tried to change the whole nation's eating habits. I mean, before there had been recommendations if you suffered from this deficiency or you had this problem or you were overweight, maybe you should eat this. And, you know, that's what dietary advice was about. It was about particular groups. But here, for the first time, we were addressing the entire country and urging everybody, healthy or not. I mean, people who had no problem with heart disease, people who had no problem with obesity, they were being told to change their diet too, to get fat out of their diet. Um, and this was a very radical experiment in public health. And uh, it was well-intentioned. It's very important to, to note. There were, this was an effort to, to eliminate heart disease or, or reduce heart disease. And there was a lot of heart disease around. And people thought this was the answer. The problem was, though, that the science really was never very good. There was not a lot of proof. What we knew was that saturated, here's what we knew. Uh, cholesterol seemed connected to heart disease. And saturated fat in the diet seemed to increase cholesterol. But we were never able actually to make the link that saturated fat led to heart disease. So we had these two linkages 
And, but we couldn't link the two linkages. But there was a kind of assumption that, you know, eating cholesterol and saturated fat would increase the amount of cholesterol in your, in your bloodstream, and that high cholesterol meant you were more likely to get. Uh, but there are a lot of problems with this. Cholesterol in the diet didn't translate necessarily into cholesterol in the bloodstream. And there are lots of people who have high cholesterol who never have heart disease or heart attacks, and there are lots of people who have heart attacks who don't have high cholesterol. The reason we focused so madly on cholesterol and therefore saturated fat was it was the only uh, factor that we could read, that we could see correlated with heart disease. Now we can measure all sorts of other things. We can measure you know, good cholesterol and bad cholesterol, and now there are even subcategories of those, um, and homocysteine levels and um, uh, C-reactive protein. And now we, now we think about those as, as warning signs for, cancer, uh, for heart disease, and we try to reduce those. So you see what science can perceive, what it knows how to measure, it suddenly assumes is the important thing. Because what else can it talk about? That's what it can see. So we, we, we obsess on what we happen to be able to perceive. And it's the same thing with nutrients. The nutrients we can see, we decide are the really important ones. Uh, and, you know, but what are we missing? What can't we see? Uh, and I'm sure there's still other, you know, important factors tied to heart disease that we can't see. Um, and also, we also mistake a correlation. I mean, cholesterol might not be a cause of coronary uh, heart disease. It might be a symptom of it, that your cholesterol rate goes up when you're having uh, some other problem, like, say, inflammation of the arteries, uh, where now there's a lot of work. Um, so the cause and effect gets very confused. But the main thing was this, was, this science was very young, primitive in some ways, and to make the leap that reducing fat in our diet would solve the problem was a huge leap. And the people who made it said, understood this. They knew there was still a debate. There were very credible scientists back then in the 60s who were saying, in the 70s, who were saying, you know, refined carbohydrates might really be the problem with heart disease, not fat. And this debate was going on. But the, um, uh, the people on the fat side of the argument, what they had on their side were two things. One was, it seemed, it, fat seemed bad because fat is the same word for something we don't like on our bodies called fat. And it's just kind of a coincidence that the, um, that the nutrient and the condition are the same. So fat was evil by nature. It will always be evil uh, by nature because we don't want to be fat. If we changed its name to lipids or something like that, I think fat would get a much fairer shake uh, as a nutrient. It wouldn't be discriminated against, you know, the way, you know, I mean, nobody has the same thing about protein or carbohydrates, you know, that's so evil as fat. But... Um, the other, the other thing was people just kind of assumed, and I guess for the same reason, that even if we're not 100% sure that fat is the cause of heart disease, it can't hurt to get it out of our diets. Probably is a good thing to get it out of our diets. I mean, it's fat after all. So um, we made this big move, and it turned out to be a mistake. One of the interesting experiments you talk about is the Aboriginal study by Karen O'Day. Mm -hmm. And because... We, you talk about a lot of the, uh, the problems with all the other nutritional studies, which seems like they, once you start thinking about it, it, it seems like you couldn't possibly get any decent information out of them, e even though they're trying to simplify things. And in fact, the simplification is the problem with a lot of our understanding of food. Well, I think that's right. I mean, nutritionism is very reductive. It focuses on single factors and has trouble seeing holes. 
And that's why some of the more interesting studies of food have, have, have been, you know, taking a whole population and changing its diet. So the one you're, you're referring to is um, one of the things we know with some certainty and have known for more than 100 years is that people who eat this Western diet, which is to say lots of refined grain, lots of processed food, very little fruits and vegetables and whole grains, um, lots of red meat, um, they, uh, they reliably get chronic diseases as they age uh, and sometimes quite young. Um, obesity, in, in a predictable order, obesity uh, followed by diabetes, followed by heart disease, followed by cancers. Um, and so we know this. And we know that when populations who haven't been exposed to that diet suddenly start eating that way, they get those chronic diseases rather dramatically. And we see this with Pacific Islanders. We've seen this with Mexicans you know, uh, coming to our country. Um, these are the people that really struggle with weight and diabetes, uh, probably because they haven't been exposed to refined grain for that long. You know, this kind of onslaught of sugar that we have in our system because refined grain turns into sugar as soon as it hits your, begins doing that as soon as it hits your tongue. Um, so anyway, this Karen O'Day, this brilliant uh, nutrition researcher in uh, Australia, had this idea. Aborigines really struggle with, obe with obesity, diabetes, and heart disease as soon as they move to the cities and give up their traditional diets. Um, she took a group of diabetic, overweight, high blood pressure Aborigines and persuaded them to go back to the bush and resume their traditional diet. She wanted to see what would happen. So uh, they went back to living uh, in a couple different locations, seaside for a while, then inland, uh, you know, fishing for themselves, hunting for themselves, gathering their traditional foods. They still knew how to do it because they were not removed that far from the land. And within six weeks, most of their markers for what's called metabolic syndrome, their, their, um, you know, which is the situation that leads both to heart disease and diabetes, disappeared came back, all their, you know, blood pressure, insulin levels, all came back into the normal range. Stunning reversal of their symptoms, not to mention they lost 10 or 15 pounds on top of it. Um, what that showed is that the effects of the Western diet can be reversed. Now, that's a radical way to reverse it. Uh, and, and similar experiments have been done in Hawaii, putting people back on their traditional diets. Um, but there's a very important lesson for us to take away from this, that it's worth getting off the Western diet at any age, and that if we can return to a more traditional way of eating, it doesn't have to be hunting and gathering, um, and I don't think that's a realistic option for most of us, um, but if we can get off these foods, um, we can reverse many of their, their most uh, damaging effects on our health. One of the things I found really interesting was uh, some of the research of Bruce Ames at the Children's Hospital mm -hmm. in Oakland, and he, he talks about a, a negative feedback loop, which is, I think, kind of scary. <laughs> yeah, he's a brilliant uh, biochemist at, at Berkeley and at Children's Hospital where he does a lot of, and he's, and he's become completely obsessed with nutrition. And he believes a lot of our health problems are tied to micronutrient deficiencies, that we do not Although we don't have gross deficiencies that would produce rickets or scurvy or things like that, we have minor deficiencies that, that, that are producing cancers over time. Um, and that the effects of not getting enough vitamin D, vitamin A, and many other vitamins uh, closely mimics at the cellular level or the DNA level radiation. 
uh, leads to breaks in the in the DNA and mutations and things like that. So he's very concerned about um, the fact that we're not getting enough of these micronutrients and antioxidants. The reason we're not getting them is because we're not eating enough plants. Uh, if you eat a diet of fruits and vegetables, you're really covering all your bases for those um, for those compounds. Um, he he has this, and he's proven a lot of this. Uh, but he has a hypothesis that I don't think he's proven yet, which is that one of the causes of obesity, he thinks, is the drive of the body to find missing nutrients. And if you're eating a fast food diet, which has very few green plants in it, that has essentially refined corn and soybeans, you are not getting all these vitamins and micronutrients that you need. Your body, though, keeps looking for them. And you're not, your appetite will, uh, is not satisfied until you find them. And we do know that we have instincts leading us toward nutrients we need. Um, and so he believes that the feedback loop in fast food is that since it's, it's filling you up but not satisfying your need for nutrients, uh, in a sense you're never full. You keep eating more in quest of the absent nutrient. Um, this would be a brilliant strategy on the part of the fast food companies, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's, it's almost like an addiction uh, that you keep needing more. Uh, but, of course, the, the absent nutrient is never found uh, because it's just not in the food. Um, again, this isn't known. This isn't proven. Uh, but it's a very interesting hypothesis. And it would explain why people overeat um, unnourishing foods. Uh, and I think generally people are satisfied more quickly when they're eating foods that's very rich in, in, in nutrients. Um, so anyway, it's, it's definitely worthy of, of, uh, of uh, you know, performing experiments to see if it's true. Well, one of the things that uh, Karen O'Day's experiment suggests is that, as you say, it's possible to reverse the effects of this Western diet. And one of the things that you discovered in The Omnivore's Dilemma is that we now actually have we could we can go to the grocery store and between grocery stores and um, farmers markets we can actually obtain the materials to eat healthily but it takes as you say we have to learn to identify what is food and distinguish it from the edible food like substances that are masquerading as food <laughs> yeah i mean we're you know these are in some ways the best of times and the worst of times when it comes to the american food system you know the the, the stores are full of, of really, you know, cruddy food, um, highly processed food products, possibly fortified, you know, but still, I mean, just really lots of empty calories, tons of energy uh, with very little. Uh, we've had the, a nutritional inflation, you know, there's less nutrients per calorie than there used to be because of processing of food. Um, you know, we have a, there's a new creature on the world stage, which is to say someone who is overnourished, and, or let, let's put it this way, someone who is overfed and undernourished. This is a, talk about historically unprecedented. Traditionally, if you got enough food to eat, you had all the nutrients you needed because food was very rich in nutrients. Now, you can get plenty of calories and not get enough nutrients eating fast food. But, so it's, that's, that's a very dark side of the American food system that we should have created a situation where this is even possible. On the other hand, we have all these wonderful alternatives. You know, the farmer's market mo movement is booming. It's the fastest growing corner of the, the, the food economy. You know, when you shop at the farmer's market, that's all food. There's no edible food-like substances there. That's the real thing. You're not going to find any high fructose corn syrup there. And if you eat from places like that or from the CSA box, um, you've escaped the Western diet. 
congratulations. You know, you've solved your problem. But you've had to, you probably had to cook, which many people, you know, have lost the skills or the inclination to do. Um, and you perhaps have had to spend more money on food than you would buying fast food. Um, so it, it takes some uh, resources, both in terms of time and money, to escape the Western diet. But the path is there before us, especially for those of us who live in California, where our farmer's markets are open 50 weeks a year and there's good food in the market all year long. Um, it's harder to do in the East or in the North. Um, but we have, you know, we have alternatives that didn't exist 40 years ago. I say at some point in the book that, that this would have been the manifesto of a crackpot 40 years ago because to eat the way I'm talking about, which is to say whole foods grown you know, in good, healthy soils with care, preferably local, seasonal, at the peak of their nutritional quality and taste quality, to do that, you would have had to grow it yourself 40 years ago. Um, or, or you would have been, you know, real outliers, you know, um, growing organic food before that, you know, when that word was associated with absolute craziness. Um, so now you can get organic food, you know, just about anywhere. Uh, it's, they have organic food in Walmart now. Um, so we live in good times also. We have, we have the option. If we're willing to make the commitment, we can escape the Western diet. Those of us who can afford it, there is definitely an access question. Um, because we have a food system that's organized in such a way that the, the cheapest calories are the least healthy calories. And, um, you know, that's just shameful. Um, the fact is that if you've got a dollar to spend, you can get a lot more food energy in the junk food aisles than you can in the produce aisles. And that's a result of policies that we need to change. Well, one of the things you point out in both your books is how active a part the government has played, government regulation has played, in essentially annihilating our, our any the benefits of, of eating the, 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 the way it's uh, supported by regulations. Well, the government has pushed us onto, you know, this seed-based diet of corn and soy and wheat, definitely, by, because that's what the government subsidizes. Um, Industry loves this system, you see, because the way to make money selling food, you don't make a lot of money selling whole foods. You can ask any farmer. It's a tough way to make a living. You make real money selling other stuff, selling convenience, selling novelty, processing food as much as possible. You know, if you start with some rolled oats, they're really cheap in the market. You, you can get a pound of them for 79 cents organic, okay? A pound of rolled oats is a lot of food. But you can't make money selling rolled oats. It's really hard. It's a commodity. Yours are no different than the other guys. Uh, the price is always coming down, as historically happens with commodities. So what do you do? You process them. You add value. You turn those rolled oats into Cheerios. And suddenly you've got something. You've got a brand. You've got the shape. You have the convenience. You just add milk. You don't have to cook it. You know, you're already, you, now, you're, now you're making, you're getting $4 for 10 cents worth of oats. Good business. But even then, that eventually turns into a commodity. And you have all the, um, you know, the house brands of all the supermarket chains, and they're making their, you know, their fake Cheerios that look just like yours, taste as good, same thing, basically. So what do you do? Well, you process it more. You start making honey, honey nut Cheerio cereal bars with a layer of synthetic milk in the middle, a new convenience food so the kids can eat it in the car on the way to school or on the school bus. And then by the pound, you're, you must be making, I don't know, $30, $40 a pound for that stuff. And it's really just oats still. 
Um, so you see there's, there's this imperative to start with the cheap raw materials that the government makes cheap by subsidizing them and process it as much as possible. So you capture all the money. The farmer captures very little of it. Um, the problem is that every one of those processing steps makes it a less healthy food. So you see the imperative of, of, of industry and the biological imperative are at war with one another. Um, and that's where we get into trouble. So the government tends to support this system, um, which happens to fly in the face of what would be good for our health. And on the other side of the, the equation, there's the FDA, which at one point in time, in 1938, they said if something's imitation, it had to be labeled imitation. <laughs> that, you know, that was, a, that was important. That was a kind of red letter day on the, on the rise, in the rise of nutritionism. The repeal of the imitation rule, and this was an interesting thing I, I bumped into when I was doing this research. I'd never heard about this. But since 1938, there was a rule that if you took a traditional food that everybody knows, like bread or pasta or sour cream, and you changed it in some fundamental way and added other things to it, these additives were considered adulterants. That was a common word. You're, you're adulterating the food by adding things. Going back to Upton Sinclair and all the weird things they were putting into sausage that they, they banned. So um, to make, say, let's take an example, uh, no-fat sour cream, okay? Now, cream, you know, is all about fat. But, okay, we want no-fat sour cream. Once you remove the fat, you have to replace it with something that gives you the sensation of fat, the sense of fullness on the tongue, you know. So what do they do? They put in, oh, let's say, let's put in some carrageenan, which is a seaweed derivative. Let's put in some guar gum, something uh, kind of a slime that comes from a tropical bean. Um, xanthan gum made from corn. And you put in all these synthetic things to, um, and, they're not, and they're not all synthetic. Some come from natural things, but they're synthetic when you're talking about sour cream. Uh, and suddenly you have this really complicated multi-ingredient, you know, 10-ingredient product. Um, you would have had before 1973 to call that imitation sour cream. IMO is what they used to call it. IMO. <laughs> you, do you remember IMO? <laughs> no. Oh, yeah. When it first came out, it, it was called IMO. IMO. I love it that. that sounds, it wasn't sour cream. It was IMO. <laughs> that sounds really scary. It it's sort of like Cool Whip. You know, they can't call that whipped cream because it has nothing to do with There's no cream in it at all. It's all cornstarch and whatever else is in there. So um, imitation food, though, would never sell, by and large. People don't want to buy imitation sour cream. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a kiss of death in the marketplace. So the industry worked very hard to get the imitation rule thrown out. And they had the help of this whole low-fat public health campaign. The American Heart Association weighed in and encouraged the FDA to drop the imitation rule because they wanted to see all these products have the fat removed. So the imitation rule was a big step on the way toward a world of fake food products, and the supermarkets are now full of them. Uh, and I think it's a shame. I mean, I think it's fine these things exist. No one's saying we shouldn't sell them. Uh, if people want to eat fake sour cream, be my guest. But let's call a spade a spade here. You give, at the conclusion of your new book, a, a series of what you call food algorithms. And, and I think they're, they're really helpful. I've been using them, and I can tell you from personal experience, it's now impossible for me. There's only, I could only find one kind brand in my local market of salad dressing that I could that 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 I could buy because everything else was filled with corn. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, there's a lot of high fructose corn syrup now in salad dressing, isn't there? And there's a lot of multi-ingredient 
Uh, sure. Yeah, one of my rules is, you know, don't buy anything with more than five ingredients or with ingredients you can't pronounce or with high fructose corn syrup. These, you know, I, I'm not super rigid about all these, but these, the idea is to suggest that these are all overly complicated processed food products. You know, high fructose corn syrup may not be a, a dietary evil in and of itself. It may be no worse than sugar, which is what the industry contends, and they may well be right. But it's a real marker of a highly processed food. I mean, who but a food scientist at a large corporation cooks with high fructose corn syrup? Do you know anyone who cooks with high fructose corn syrup? Yeah. I don't think so. Um, so it's a sign of something. Um, some of the other algorithms are, you know, don't eat anything your, your great-grandmother wouldn't recognize as food. Imagine she's with you in the supermarket and you're rolling down the aisles and she picks up the, you know, the Go-Gurt portable yogurt tubes. She's not going to know what that is. She's not even going to know how you put it into your body. Um, this is a very strange thing. Um, so that's not food. Um, and if she read the ingredients, too, she would see all sorts of things besides what yogurt ostensibly is, which is milk and a bacterial culture. End of story. Not on Gogurt. There's a lot of ingredients in there. Um, what are they about? Oh, you know, synthesizing a certain texture, syn synthesizing a certain flavor. Um, so this is a food that's gotten, you know, that's left the realm of food and become an edible food-like substance. Uh, another rule is, um, oh yeah, if you're concerned about your health, avoid food that makes health claims. Because food that makes health claims is packaged food, usually, has a big budget to pay for the health claim, get the science done. Um, and very often it's a health claim that's based on very sketchy science. The rules for health claims are laughably lax. There's something called a qualified health claim now that you see on food. The word qualified in this case means essentially meaningless um, because uh, there, you need very, very little science. You just need, to, you need a hypothesis to make a qualified health claim, basically. And, you know, some of these health claims may be accurate, but a lot of them are, are exaggerated. All the whole, you know, the whole grain goodness you see on, on uh, breakfast cereal that's essentially candy. I mean, they put a little bit of whole grain in there, and they, you know, put it up in big type to impress mom that, you know, this is actually health food, not candy. But it's not. It's candy. And uh, so I say we should be very suspicious of health claims. Um, and also because the healthiest food in the store is quiet. It has nothing to say in the produce section. You don't see any health claims because there are no packages to put it on, and they don't have the budgets. The broccoli growers don't have the budgets to go out and prove, you know, the, the, the health wonders of broccoli. But, you know, this is the best food for us, and it's saying the least about health. So as I say in the book, you know, don't take the silence of the yams as evidence that, that they have nothing important to say about your health. I, I wanted to ask you, what does... Going forward, what does the new American meal look like? I mean, what what are you eating, for example? I eat food. <laughs> <laughs> well, what is it mostly? What is... Um, I eat very simply. I mean, we cook a lot. We cook, you know, I don't know, four or five nights out of the week at least. And um, uh, I we eat a lot of vegetables. We have, you know, we have a couple of vegetarian nights a week. We're not always eating meat. We do stir fries. Um, uh, we, when we do have protein, we'll just grill it. We have a barbecue that we use a lot. Um, so we'll marinate a piece of grass-fed steak or something like that and, um, uh, and just, you know, grill it. Um, we'll eat a lot of fish, also often grilled, sometimes sautéed. You know, olive oil and garlic. And, you know, you can solve almost any problem in the kitchen with olive oil and garlic. <laughs> uh, 
One of the things, your books ha come packed with a lot of really interesting and generally alarming facts. <laughs> uh, could you talk a little bit about where you go, how you ferret out those facts? Well, I'm a journalist. I'm a reporter. And, you know, in several ways. I read widely. I'm always collecting information. I have, you know, I have an eye for alarming and striking facts, and they stick with me. Um, I, uh, you know, I spend a lot of time on the phone talking to people, and uh, it's sifting, you know? It's, it's like casting a really wide net and a lot of boring stuff comes up. And, and over time, you learn how to discard it quickly and, and find those gems uh, in, in the mass of material that you're, you're turning up. Um, I don't know. It's part of being a, a journalist is that things pop out. You know, things pop out at you. It's like looking for mushrooms in the woods, you know. Sometimes you don't see anything, and suddenly, all of a sudden, the chanterelles are screaming, here I am. And that happens with really good facts also. Both uh, of, of these books I've read are remarkably well written in, in an interesting way because as we read them, we don't really notice, in a sense, how well written they are because they're, you're just going, oh my god, is that what I'm eating? Oh, oh ah. So uh, I, could you talk about how you, the process of putting together these books? I, and I was thinking of in defense of food is like a beautifully, it's like a piece of architecture, the, the writing. I mean, there's three parts. Each part has the subparts. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, it's a, it's a fantastic piece of writing on all levels. Well, thank you. Levels. That's very kind. It's, you know, it, it has a very um, clear organization. I wanted this book to be very legible. This is a book you can get. You can, you can pick it up and thumb through it and say, okay, I see. This part does this, this part does this, this part does that. And so I wanted, I wanted that about it. Omnivore's Dilemma is a very different kind of book. That's a kind of deep journey where you get lost and then you get refound and you find yourself in very surprising places. Uh, and it's much more of a narrative. Um, Omnivore's Dilemma, I'm, I'm sorry, In Defense of Food is more of a, it's, a, it's an argument. It's a manifesto. I have a case that I'm making and I'm, and I'm and I'm in a rush, and it moves really fast. And the other book is, you know, meanders a little bit more. Um, so, you know, different books call for different forms, and that's part of what being a writer is, is, is understanding the, the, the proper form for, for your story. Um, and sometimes you argue, and sometimes you travel and explore, and sometimes you... Um, uh, you, you, you sneak up on people. And, and, and um, so the rhetorical strategies of the books are very, very important. And it's great you're not that aware of it as you're reading it. You shouldn't be. That's not, it's not for you to worry about. That's for me to worry about as a reader. I'm trying to figure out the best vehicle to, uh, to get us where we want to go. And, um, but for me, the writing is a very, very important part of it. The humor is a very important part of it. I mean, I, you know, for me, I think it's important books be funny, even and when they're about serious. these books are very funny. Well, thanks for yeah, saying that. I, I, that's that that's was the highest compliment. Um, <laughs> but there is a lot of comedy in this because there's folly. I mean, there's there's something ridiculous about what's going on with food. I mean, it's shameful and horrible too, but it's also ridiculous and 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 humorous. And I, you know, I I basically have a comic view of things. Um, it's how I stay sane and don't get depressed about things. Um, so it's really important for me that my work entertain first and instruct second. Um, and, you know, to uh, uh, delighting people is, is so important. Um, I don't like to lecture at people. I don't like to preach. And um, uh, I like nonfiction books that give me pleasure, uh, no matter what they're talking about. But there's the pleasure in the storytelling, pleasure in the sentences, 
Uh, and that really has to be, that has to be there. And if I'm getting that, I'm willing to go anywhere with a writer. Uh, I'm willing to look at the heart of darkness. Um, but, you know, if, if the writer can do it through telling a story rather than lecturing, you know, that makes all the difference in the world. We've been speaking with Michael Pollan. His new book is called In Defense of Food, An Eater's Manifesto. Thank you for joining me, Michael. Thank you, Rick. It's a pleasure. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.